If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10. We're going to get into Acts chapter 10 this morning. And this passage is going to take us a a few weeks to get through. Actually, three Sundays will be dedicated to the events and the episode uh, taking place between Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, verse 18. So I'll take the first two swings at it, and then um, Lord willing, Jonathan Sign will come in three weeks from today, and he'll clean it up. When anything I missed, uh, he's got cleanup duty for 11, 1 through 18. We are in Acts chapter 10, and this morning the goal is to get through verses 1 through 33. Uh, if you have a Bible, um, feel free to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in one of the seats in front of you. And uh, if somebody has one of those gray paper Bibles, would you just tell me the page number? If you've got... 535. Thank you, London and Ben. Page 535 in the gray paper Bible there. And... Um, We'll get into verses 1 through 33 in just a minute. Uh, Acts chapter 10 is one of the most important chapters of the entire book of Acts, if not the most important chapter. I didn't say that. That's what R.C. Sproul says. Uh, And he says, actually, it's one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament because it brings to our attention an extremely important moment in redemptive history. It's a time of transition from the old way of doing things to a whole new approach, a whole new epic of God's redemptive activity. That's a fairly heavy, uh, serious statement that Acts chapter 10 through Acts 11, 1 through 18 is one of the most important sections in the entire New Testament. But it's not just him. Uh, Pat Schreiner says the Cornelius episode is the central text for chapters 8 through 12 and one of the most important texts for the book of Acts as a whole, indicated by the amount of space given to it. Uh, Richard Purvo says that the issues generated by this chapter will not meet their final resolution until chapter 15, but the controversy surrounding Paul's fulfillment of them will remain unresolved even at the end of this book. The fundamental problem of Acts is the validity of the Gentile mission. It'll take a few chapters for the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 15 to even come to grips with the situation at hand. And so, allow me to set up the next three weeks here in just a few minutes. It it may feel kind of like a... uh, a lecture or a college seminary Bible class or something, let me just encourage you, take some notes, jot down some questions, highlight a couple things that you need to research later, and, uh, and then in a few minutes we'll get into the text. But I want to show you what the big deal is about Acts chapter 10. All right, Just bear with me. Paul wrote to the Colossians, and he said that uh, I became a minister And God made the Word of God fully known so that the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations would be now revealed to His saints. And what is the mystery that God revealed to Paul? It is that God chose to make known His greatness among the Gentiles. And the riches of the glory of this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery 
is that the Gentiles have become part of the church through the ministry of Jesus. Now listen, Sproul says, up until this time, Gentiles were considered outside the scope of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and Moses and were therefore without hope. But when Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, this barrier between Jew and Gentile was broken and hope was extended to Gentiles. Now listen, we're going to kind of try to figure out why this is such a big deal. And if you don't know what a Gentile is, I mean, that's just us. We're, remember Jesus, um, when the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus and said, I need you to heal my daughter. This is a woman who is outside, not an Israelite, a Jewish person. And she came to Jesus for healing. And Jesus said, it's not right to take the bread that was meant for the children. That is that Jesus came first to Israel as their Messiah. And His ministry was focused directly on earth. His three-year ministry was focused directly on Israel. He told His disciples, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't go to any Gentile towns. It was a ministry focused to proclaim Him as the Messiah. But once they rejected Jesus as Messiah, then the Gentile mission opens. But the woman, the Syrophoenician woman, says, can you heal me? And he said, no, it's not right for me to take the bread that is meant for the children and give it to dogs. And he's not calling her a dog. It's just an illustration. But we're the Gentile dogs, all right? Anyone in the room who's not Jewish, uh, I know Randy, I know there's a couple of other, any other Jewish people in the room, I know there's a few. Um, that Anyone who's not, we, were, we would be fit under the category of a Gentile. And so this is why Acts chapter 10 is such a big deal because up until this point in Acts, the church's growth was mainly and largely limited to Jewish people. Uh, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people um, give their life to Christ. They are from the diaspora, the dispersion of Jews all around the Roman world. Um, they came back to Jerusalem for the festival at Pentecost, for the, the, the feast of the 50 days after. Um, they heard and experienced the gospel and were saved. This is all Jewish people who are, getting, uh, who are embracing Jesus as the Messiah and giving, put their faith in Him. This is how the church is growing in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. Just last week we preached how Peter was going to visit all the churches that had grown out of Jerusalem into Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And so the church is expanding, but it's mainly made up of Jewish people. Now, there, listen, there's some outliers, right? Um, Stephen goes and preaches to the Samaritans. Are Samaritans Jews? Eh, I mean, so-so. Like Jesus wouldn't even go, they wouldn't even go through Samaria because they were considered um, compromised in that they would um, intermingle and intermarry with any sort of uh, nation in this one particular area of Israel that, that would come through. So they had their own worship principles. They said, you know, Jesus to the woman at the, at the well in John chapter 4, you say that we must worship here, uh, but we say we worship here. And when the Messiah comes, he'll sort it all out. There was a bias against the Samaritans, but, but in Acts chapter 8, the gospel goes out to Samaria. And Peter and John go and they validate that and the Holy Spirit falls on these Jewish people as well. And then, so this is the first time that the church is expanding in Acts chapter 10 into the Gentile world. Now why is this such a big deal? It's the, the reality of the changing of a covenant. 
Jesus inaugurated a new covenant by his death and resurrection. Listen, a covenant is simply defined as the way God chooses to interact with humanity. The rules and parameters, the grounds that define God's relationship and the the boundaries for his interaction with us and the basis upon which we can be accepted by him. You might have some insight into a framework called covenant theology. You could just sort of make a note to check that later. But it basically says that there are, you know, we, we read the Bible and understand it according to these covenants. Uh, the covenant of redemption. That is before the entire creation of the world, uh, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, God the Father agreed together to redeem humanity. Basically a father finding a bride for his son. And so before creation, Ephesians 1 says, He chose you in Him before the creation of the world. It's Ephesians 1. That's the covenant of redemption. Then with creation came the covenant of works. Adam and Eve, if you do this, then you will live. And if you don't do this, um, if you do this other way, if you eat from this tree, then you will surely die. It's a covenant of works. Then, after they failed, there was introduced the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace includes uh, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. We think through these covenants. You know your Old Testament. You know that God um, came to Noah, and he, He made a covenant with Him, a promise. And what's the sign of the promise? Every kid in the room knows this. What's the sign of God's promise to Noah? It's a rainbow that he would never again destroy the world with a flood. And that's the covenant that God made with Noah and with the rest of humanity from Noah's family. Uh, God came to Abraham in Genesis 12 and he, he made a covenant with him. Um, I will bless you and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Uh, this promised Messiah will come from not just the humanity, left over from Noah, but now from Abraham's family, and then from Isaac and Jacob, and then down into uh, David's family and the Davidic covenant. All of these covenants, God is narrowing the pool in which He will bring blessing and salvation to the world. So that when Jesus came, He was called the Son of David, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. We see all of that in these covenants. But at the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, His own words in Luke 22 were, This is the cup, my blood which is shed for you. This is the new covenant. Meaning that Jesus inaugurated a brand new covenant. And so when He died, and when He was resurrected, and when He ascended up into heaven, this new covenant began when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And part of the new covenant is the Gentiles will now. That's the mystery Paul talks about in Colossians 1. The mystery is that now, now we, we don't have to go through the temple and we don't have to go through the sacrificial system and we don't have to obey the dietary laws, but, but now we have access to God through Jesus Christ, each of us. This is the reality uh, of how the Bible describes this new covenant through Jesus. But what really makes Acts chapter 10 a big deal is not just the idea of a new covenant, 
But now it's, it's the rubber meets the road. It's the reality. It's, it's kind of like when um, a, a new administration comes into the White House and, and all of a sudden new people get hired and there's new changes in policy and new changes in, in uh, you know, diplomatic relations and, and, uh, and our policies around the world and our policies. in When a new administration comes, there's, all of a sudden you see the trickle-down effect and there's a new law or there's a new um, you know, way of communicating or there's something like that. This Acts chapter 10 is when the reality of the new covenant comes to bear. Up until now, it's only been an idea. But now we're going to get Gentiles having the exact same status as the apostles themselves. The Holy Spirit is about to descend on Cornelius and his audience in exactly the same way as it did for Peter and the apostles and the disciples and the 120 in the upper room. Now listen, why is this a big deal? The uh, culture has some kind of a binding effect on us. Um, you are distinguished from other subcultures by what you wear, how you speak, the food you eat, the holidays you celebrate, the story that your tribe kind of tells, right? Uh, this week, just for example, I read a, a tweet from a guy who's an independent fundamentalist Baptist, kind of grew up in that background. And he said something like, I was repeatedly told I was going to hell if my hair ever touched my collar, or if I danced, or if I played cards, or if I drank alcohol, or if I listened to music with a certain demonic devil beat, if I wore the wrong clothes that didn't uh, cover my ankles, or something like that, if I got a tattoo, if I didn't kiss dating goodbye, if I didn't court someone in their entire family. He said, I moved through life with the sheer terror that I would accidentally dance and lose my salvation. Listen, those aren't things in the Bible. Jesus never said anything about those things. Those are cultural issues that were ingrained in your life if you grew up in that culture. Uh, there's a strong Catholic culture. I'm from a Catholic background. Uh, three or four generations of Catholicism um, in my, my family. And, and though I wasn't Catholic, and though um, most of the people in my family aren't Christians aren't Christ followers, they're not believers, but they grew up in a strong Catholic subculture with all of its you know, blessings and curses. Catholic guilt is a real thing, and um, you know, a to-do list that's always running, and, and the fear of purgatory, and all kinds of things that aren't mentioned in the Bible, but are unique to a Catholic subculture. I don't think I need to go into a lot of detail. I think you grasp the entanglements from a subculture. Uh, the Mennonite subculture, there's an Amish subculture. Uh, there are all these different subcultures. And, and listen, let me just make this point. One of the most important things that you can do as an adult is make a clear distinction between your subculture and the Bible. Because what you think might be loving Jesus may not be loving Jesus at all, but being faithful to a subculture and a set of norms and ideals and values, they may not even be biblical, to be quite honest. So one of the most mature things you can do is distinguish between your subculture and between what Scripture prescribes in Christ. Seek to be biblical, not merely a byproduct of a subculture. Continue to evaluate your life asking, is this biblical? Or is this just an idea that's sort of part of my subculture? The reality is it's hard to change cultures, and that's what Acts 10 is, is sort of getting to uh, the bottom of. You can ask any immigrant. Talk to anybody who grew up in one way of thinking and behaving and relating to uh, their group who is now in a different group. 
We used to go to a place called uh, Dutch Wonderland. Have you ever heard of Dutch Wonderland, anybody? We'd go there for like five summers in a row. And, and, and every year we would go there and we would just be in normal like swim trunks. And normal, but there were a whole group of people that were head to toe covered in these kind of robes. I don't know what it was, but they were like fully dressed. And that this was the only place where they could go that preserved their culture's idea of bathing in public. And um, it was just a whole subculture. And, uh, and so they, they were uh, ingrained in that. But for Peter and for the Jews, everything about their way of life will change as a result of Jesus. And this change is abrupt, and it's happening right here. With Jesus ascending to the Holy Spirit, poured out on the new church, the new covenant is inaugurated. Um, Jesus declared all foods clean. He loosened Sabbath restrictions from the burdensome list of rules that it was to its original intent as a day of rest. He declared that all men and women can be grafted into God's people through Himself. Listen, up until this time, a Jew couldn't even go into a Gentile's house. A faithful Jew couldn't eat with a Gentile, do business with a Gentile, or even be too friendly with a Gentile, much less marry a Gentile or worship with a Gentile. And that's why in the Gospels, you see such harsh reaction to tax collectors because they completely sold out their subculture, the Jewish culture, and they embraced Rome and made money off their own people. But Jesus gave the disciples this great commission. I want you to hear it differently. In Matthew 28, after His death and resurrection, uh, He's about to ascend 40 days later, and He says, Jesus came to them and He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now that all nations part would have left these Israelites uh, it would have left them scratched. They would have heard it a little differently than we hear it because of these obligations and these restrictions in Gentiles. Do you understand why this is kind of a big deal? That Cornelius, a Gentile, is about to be grafted into the church and have the same status as Peter. All of a sudden, bacon is legal. Right? Bacon smelled like bacon back in Jesus' day. Right? Jesus' village, Capernaum, uh, the village of Nahum, Capernaum, I mean, just the Sea of Galilee is, is really just a Lake Gennesaret. It's not a huge thing. And where the pigs that came off the cliff, remember, you can see it from Jesus' house. And so all the Gentiles who were having barbecues, they could smell that. But they weren't allowed to eat that. And so that's a big deal. If you have all these dietary restrictions and difficulties that, that, that all of a sudden now that's being loosened, this is a big deal. So now, we kind of have the table set, some background information. Let's look at the text. You remember last week, right above chapter 10, verse 1, 943 says that Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. Simon the Tanner is perpetually ritually unclean because of his constant contact with what? Dead bodies, dead animals, right? He could not go into the temple. He was constantly, because of the work of his hands, unclean, unclean, unclean. Um, if a leper was in Israel, they had to walk around shouting, unclean, unclean, unclean. It was why it's so amazing that Jesus would go up and, and, and touch someone who was unclean, and instead of them making Jesus unclean, Jesus cleansed them. 
So Peter is now hung up with this idea of uncleanness. So he's staying with a guy named Simon the Tanner who is unclean. And let's listen to what happens in chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Let's just get some background from this information here. Caesarea is about 40 miles from Joppa. It's a 13-hour walk according to my Google map that I pulled up last night. Um, It's about two days' time. And we know that because uh, in 11, Peter's going to explain four days ago. I mean, Cornelius is going to explain four days ago I had this vision. So it took two days to send envoys. It took two days for them to get back with Peter. So it's about a four-day round-trip journey from Caesarea to Joppa. Coincidentally, it's about 40 miles from Jerusalem northwest to Joppa. So the distance from Jerusalem to Joppa, if you're, if this is the Jerusalem, Joppa in the northwest, and then straight north, Caesarea. It's about 40 miles, uh, two-day walk. Um, Caesarea was known as the Roman governmental and military control center for all of Israel and Syria. It's a military town. Uh, we visited Caesarea. Um, it had a, um, uh, do you call it a hippodrome? One of those things where the Horses run. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it had a, a huge amphitheater. Uh, it had a massive amount of um, Roman pillars and things. Uh, architecturally, it's an incredible city to visit. Even in its ruins, it's incredible, breathtaking to see uh, the port and all that they built. But you've been in a military town before. You see uh, people in um, fatigues. You see uh, businesses that kind of grow up and cater. Uh, to military personnel. Caesarea was a military town. And, um, and Cornelius is a military man. It says he's a centurion, which is the commander of about 100 Roman soldiers. But it also could be uh, someone who uh, is in sort of an administrative, uh, larger role, and that appears to be what, what Cornelius was. It meant that he had five times the salary of a regular soldier. It means that he was wealthy. It means that he was important. It says that he was the leader of this Italian cohort. Um, so he's a military man. He's a Roman military man, which meant that he was no stranger to brutality and violence as the, the Roman Empire expanded and it would conquer nations and people and absorb them into Rome. And, and so somewhere along the way, at some point, Cornelius has a change. Look at verse 2. It says that he, had, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously, and prayed continually to God. Um, there was some sort of a conversion to Judaism. And this is the category called God-fearing. You'll see this pop up in um, Jesus in the Gospels. You'll see it pop up in the uh, disciples in Acts. A God-fearer was a convert to Judaism, though he was a Gentile. He was devout, he feared God, he was generous, he prayed continually. And verse 3 says, about the ninth hour, that's about 3 o'clock, which aligns with the temple um, schedule of prayer, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? 
And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. What is this memorial before God? Uh, they would light incense. Uh, Jews would light incense in the temple as a memorial. Uh, they would give offerings of food and other things. And, and it would rise, as it were, as a fragrant offering to God. And so God has noticed Cornelius and his prayers and his generosity have gone up in a way that made God take notice of him. Verse 5, the vision continues, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Um, I don't want to get hung up on is this an angel or is it Jesus? It does not seem to be a major point to the passage. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But he gives Cornelius specific instructions on where to go, on who to ask for, and exactly what to do. He leaves no doubt as to what he wants Cornelius to do. So now we have a complementary vision in verse 9. You remember um, in previous chapter, um, chapter uh, 9 when Saul is converted, we have complementary visions. Saul has a vision of Jesus on the road, and then Ananias has a vision from Jesus, and, and that connects the two. Here we have the same structure. A vision for Cornelius and a vision for Peter. So let's look at verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey, that is the, the envoy, the, the soldier, and the two attendants from Cornelius, as they were on their journey and as they were approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop at about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. I just stopped here, and I thought, I mean, did God really just send him, like, hunger pains? Because sometimes he does that for me. Like, you just get struck by something in the middle of the day. And, and so, all of a sudden, Peter becomes hungry, and it plays into this vision that he's about to have. They're making the food. I know we can relate to that. Have you ever been so hungry? We had a day of prayer and fasting um, Friday, and Cherie spent the whole day cooking. I was like, why did you torture yourself like that? It's hard enough not to eat, you know, if you're just cooking all day anyway, but, but to not to be fasting and to smell the food is, is even more difficult. Peter's in this situation. He's hungry. He wants something to eat, and they're making it for him. But while he's on the rooftop, it says he fell into a trance. And he has this vision. He says, uh, verse 11, I saw the, uh, and I saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet, which is the same word for a sail on a sailboat. So some large sheet gathered at the four corners so that each corner makes a loop and he could see into that sheet all kinds of animals uh, it says that there were reptiles and birds of the air and this would have been ritually unclean forbidden animals for him to eat and a voice came to him saying rise up peter kill and eat a youth group friend of mine from fort smith was on his way to a, a, a youth camp in Siloam Springs. Is that right? Siloam Springs, Arkansas. And he sent the publisher who's making the shirts a verse that he wanted to use that was their theme for the week. And, um, and then you know, all, on the day they handed out the shirts, he looked at it, and it, instead of the verse he wanted, which was the theme for the week, it said this verse, Rise, Kill, and Eat. So all these kids all week long were walking around with a shirt that said, Rise, Kill, and Eat, with no real explanation or understanding why. Sorry, that doesn't have anything to do with our text today. 
but it just, I can't read that without thinking that. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not a very good verse for us to apply to our lives today. Um, maybe, maybe it is for some of us, but verse 14, Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Peter essentially tells the Lord no three times. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. R.C. Sproul points out that Peter had been a Jew from birth and had never broken Jewish dietary laws. Which gives us some insight into Peter's piety. And at this point, I want to give us a warning to be very careful with any portrayal that you see of Jesus or the apostles or the disciples on TV or something like that. You, you know, the Chosen series kind of depicts Peter as this wily, mischievous, law-breaking guy. But the Bible presents Peter as extremely pious. As a law-abiding, God-fearing Jew who wouldn't even eat something or touch something common or unclean. Just make that a warning to you. Before you invest all your time and, and you're shaped by uh, our, a modern director's view back into what it might have looked like, take all those things carefully. There's a reason why within the church we're not supposed to have images. Uh, in Exodus 20, we're, we're, we're not supposed to have graven images. That is, we're not supposed to try to take who the Bible presents God as and, and reduce it down to some sort of an image. Just be very careful if you're in the habit of watching movies or TV shows. Don't allow it, don't give it more credence onto how you think about Jesus and the apostles than the Bible does. If you're giving more weight to the chosen than you are to the Bible or to something like Jesus calling or something like that, get your information from the source, okay? Be shaped by the Bible's presentation of who Jesus is, who God is, who the Holy Spirit is, who the apostles are. Uh, that's just a very real modern day description. I've seen a couple of the Chosen series. I, I don't have anything against it. I'm just saying, when I see Peter in that, he's like running around and fighting people and, and breaking laws left and right. And he's, he's just kind of a mischievous, wily guy. But the Bible pre presents him here as a totally different thing. It's also interesting to note that God does this three times. Is there anything else that happened to Peter three times? Yeah, he rejected Jesus, but he knew him three times. At the date of you know, Jesus' crucifixion, um, he, the, they asked him, do you know him? And he said, no, I don't even know that guy. Three times he rejected Jesus before he was um, reinstated. And, and I love this point. God has beautiful patience with Peter. Isn't that wonderful? Some people he just tells one time, Ananias, go. Philip, go. But for Peter... Three times is the charm, right? And God has this sort of wonderful way in which he works with Peter. Um, what God has made clean, you must not call common. That's what the message, the resounding message to Peter was. What God has made clean, you must not call common. He says it three times. R.C. Sproul points out, in that moment, centuries of dietary law and legal requirements that God had sent to his people through Moses were instantly repealed. Keeping those laws had been vital to the Old Testament Jew. That's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace. That's why Daniel would uh, wind up in a lion's den. Those men held captive in Babylon were keeping kosher. 
They refused to bow down and worship the king or to eat the king's food because they wanted to remain faithful to the law of God, and they did so even for their own life. They were willing to go into a fire. They were willing to go into a lion's den just to stay ritually pure and clean before God. So does God change His laws if He's repealing all those things now? It's important to make this distinction. There are two types of law. There are God's character laws revealed in the Ten Commandments, which would never be repealed, that define His character, define the standard of His holiness that you find in Exodus 20. But then there were those specific dietary and worship laws that distinguished Israel from the other nations around her. So that all the other nations might do one thing, but Israel was to be distinct and different. A theocracy. Before a king was ever there, it was a nation ruled by God, whose land was given by God, who was governed by God and His appointed judges. And then when they got a king, it was because they wanted the king to be like the nations around them. So there was this constant tension to be like the other nations while God wanted them to be a unique and distinct nation. Those particular laws that applied to the nation Israel are not carried over into the New Testament. That's why you might have somebody who doesn't know much pick a fight with you and say, doesn't the Bible say you shouldn't eat shellfish? And doesn't the Bible say you shouldn't eat something with a cloven hoof? And those kind of things. Those were a part of the dietary restrictions for Old Covenant Israel. Right? New Covenant, uh, it's a different way in which God relates to us. All right, verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. Just the right moment, just the right time, two days before the vision happens to Cornelius. They get on their horses or whatever they do, and they get there, and, uh, and they show up to the gate at just the exact moment that Peter is trying to figure out, what does this vision mean? And so they called out, To find out if Peter was there, verse 19, Peter was pondering the vision. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise up, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men, and he said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? Verse 22, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose up and he went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa also accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them and he had called together his relatives and his close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, this is Peter, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? Just pause here for a minute. And I want you to notice something. Both Peter and Cornelius, after their visions, have an immediate and obedient response to God's leading in their life. 
They have an immediate and obedient application. Now, this may sound obvious to you, and we've been talking in previous weeks about parenting styles and, and first-time obedience and delayed obedience is actually disobedience and the importance of um, helping our kids obey. But we see it over and over again in Scripture for many people who experience uh, move from God and they're obedient to it. So it may sound obvious to you that Peter and Cornelius, after their visions, are immediately obedient. But that's not always the case. Uh, I, I counseled a woman maybe five years ago who had this dream vision. And in this sort of dream vision, she, she's not a believing person, but she remembered walking into, in this dream, um, walking into a public restroom in like a park. And, um, and when she walked in, um, it immediately became like a tunnel. And at the back wall, uh, the wall caved in and this sort of red glowing fire came out and, and outstepped some demonic looking figure waving her in. And, and as she didn't want to go, she kept feeling like she was walking toward it against, even though she didn't want to go. And, and she described this in, in great detail. And I said, well, what do you think it was? And knowing exactly what I thought it was, I said, what do you think it was? And she said, um, she said, well, I think it was the devil um, showing me a picture of what hell. And she said it was extremely real. She's not from a religious background. It didn't have anything to do with her, um, the way she grew up or something like that. It was just this clear depiction. I presented the gospel to her in the midst of that conversation, and she didn't immediately respond with faith, and, and to this day still hasn't. I remember reading a story about uh, Charles Barkley's brother, the basketball player Charles Barkley, uh, a man named Mark Cahill that played basketball at Auburn with, Mark, uh, with Charles Barkley, um, was often invited over the next 20 or so years to connect with Barkley at his house and other places. And, and when he came to his house in, in Houston, um, Mark went in and, and Charles said, hey, you need to talk to my brother. He's in the kitchen. So he went in the kitchen and he talked to his brother. And his brother said... Um, um, yeah, I wanted to tell you, I had a, I, I had a heart issue and I, I flatlined on the table in the ER. And he said, when I did that, I, I, my soul rose above my body and I could see my body. And then as I rose and went out of the hospital and over landscapes, he said, I, I finally came to this large lake that was just on fire. And I felt this dread. And, and Mark said... Um, do you know what that was? Knowing exactly what he thought it was. Barclay, his brother, said it was, I think it was a picture of what Revelation describes as the lake of burning fire, as a picture of hell. Mark Cahill presented the gospel to him and asked him if he wanted to believe in Jesus, and he said no. And, and he said, why? After you've had this very clear vision, and you know that this is a reality, why would you say no? He said, honestly, to be honest, I love I love my lifestyle. And I know that if I left, I know that if I believed in Jesus, I would have to leave my lifestyle. Listen, not everybody responds well to a vision. This isn't obvious to everybody. What else happened in Joppa? Do you remember a guy named Jonah? Go preach to the Gentiles in Nineveh. And what did he do? He went to Joppa. Not to get up and go to Nineveh, but to go to Tarshish on the opposite side. 
There are plenty of people who have a vision and a clear call from God and do the opposite. It's interesting and noteworthy that Peter and Cornelius obey. So verse 30, to finish up our message for today, the text. Peter's there. Cornelius is there and Cornelius tells him four days ago at about this time I was praying in my house and behold a man stood before me in bright clothing and said Cornelius your prayer has been heard your alms have been remembered before God send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter he's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea so I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come now therefore we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Peter is about to tell them how they can be saved. And that's what we're going to cover next week in next week's message. It's Peter's message to the Gentiles. So we're going to get into that next week. But, but let me close with this application before we get to that next week. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. <clears throat> do you feel unclean at times? Do you feel like you have a dirty conscience? Do you sort of stuff it way down deep and harden your heart because of the things you're trying to forget or regrets or uh, maybe actions that you did or that were maybe done to you, a guilty conscience? uh, um, Do you feel unclean? I remember reading in the book, The Insanity of God, um, an Afghan warlord who used to sort of lead a a group of rebels and they would raid in towns and sort of hide out as bandits uh, with these armed soldiers. And he said, I killed hundreds of men, hundreds. And he said, "Um, after years of this, I, I started having these visions of blood on my hands that would, that would just increase and move up my forearm. And in my dream, I was constantly washing my hands and I could never get the blood off of them, no matter how hard I scrubbed. Every time in this vision, this recurring vision over and over again, the blood was always on my hands. It's conscience being tormented. 1 John 1, 6-7 says that if we have fellowship with Jesus, um, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Uh, Janine read Psalm 51 earlier. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from all my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. There is a sense in which outside of Christ, before we meet Jesus, our our sin um, so permeates our our conscience that we, we feel guilty all the time. And we feel... Like, there's no peace, there's no forgiveness, there's no grace, but, but only an expectation of judgment and wrath from an angry God. And that's why so many people just push this way down deep. They don't want their conscience um, 
to keep them up and to think about it. That's why so many people turn to uh, mind-altering chemicals to suppress their conscience. In Christ Jesus, those who are unclean become clean. And this isn't new to Jesus. This was in the Levitical laws. If they uh, went to a priest and they had uh, some sort of a skin issue, they could, they could uh, experience ritual cleanness. This has been talked about forever. So when Jesus came baptizing, and John said, be baptized for the remission of your sin, for the removal of your sins, that in Christ we can be clean and whole again. If you feel like you have a dirty conscience and you're just don't feel forgiveness, you don't feel grace, you don't feel like your conscience can be cleansed. In Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. You are wiped clean. Your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west to the depths of the ocean. Anytime you're reminded of your sin, you can say, ah, Jesus took that. I don't, have to, I don't have to experience the wrath of God for that sin. Jesus bore it on His body on the tree, 1 Peter says. I'm not going to wait until next week to tell you how to be saved. If you want to be saved today, Romans 3.23 says that we need to acknowledge that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the first thing you need to understand is all of us are born sinful. You don't have to teach a kid how to lie. That's the you know, fifth commandment. Uh, you don't have to teach someone how to steal. They take each other's toys as easy as a two-year-old. All of us are born with a nature to sin against God. That's why Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's a punishment for sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is, is death. Death is eternal separation from God. It's that feeling that we feel before we meet Christ that we just can't connect to God. He's just distant and doesn't answer our prayers and we don't feel cleansed in our conscience. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.8 says that God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. It means that God paid for your sins. Though you deserve death, He killed His own Son in your place so that Jesus absorbs the wrath of God and if you hide yourself in the refuge of Jesus, you don't experience the wrath of God. Your sins are forgiven once and for forever. So how does that happen to us? How do you get that forgiveness? Romans 10, 8 through 13 says, The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's the word of faith that we proclaim. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? It means to turn from your sins and to throw yourself surrendering to Jesus who bore your sins in His body on the tree. That's what it means. That you acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and you, you, you receive Jesus' free gift that your sins can be forgiven. Now listen, when you grew up in church, doesn't mean that you are saved. Sitting in a garage doesn't make you a car, right? Just because you have a religious background in Christianity 
does not automatically mean that you're saved. There, uh, you know, Jesus' story of the prodigal son, the rebellious son went into the father's banquet at the end of the story and the, the religious older brother was outside the banquet at the end of the story. Every person to be saved must go to Jesus in humility, confession and repentance, surrendering to Him. And that's ultimately going to be Peter's message to Cornelius, and we're going to get into that next week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the Word today. And I know that all around uh, there are people who, um, in this room who hear my voice that they may not have surrendered to Jesus as of yet. Um, it's no accident that they're here and hearing this message. And so I pray that as your Spirit works among us, that all of us might be clean before you. No longer subject to a guilty conscience. No longer walking in unforgiveness. But experiencing the freedom that is available in Christ Jesus because you loved us. We sang earlier, John 3.16, that for God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. So this morning I pray, Jesus, that You would cleanse us. For those who have already been saved, maybe they're burdened by their own sin and they're burdened by the way in which they've hardened their heart and a guilty conscience. I pray that You would deliver them and that you would wash them clean today. Thank you for your word. We pray that we would apply it in Jesus' name. Amen.